When I was in high school, I had 600 Christian t-shirts. I was that kid. I was a kid with the youth group kid with the Christian t-shirts. I don't know what the real number was. Maybe, maybe a dozen. I remember one time hearing some, Aaron just mouthed more. I don't know. Hearing somebody say, uh, if I had, if I had a uh, Christian t-shirt for every time Mr. Middleton said that, I'd be Zach Bartles. And I thought, whoa, I've become like a, a cultural touchstone here. But before that, I had only one t-shirt of cosmic importance when I was in, in junior high. And it was a t-shirt with a far side cartoon on it. It was a cartoon that the caption was God at his computer. Remember this one? And God is there in his long white robe with his long white beard. And on the screen of the computer is this average kind of dopey far side guy and dangling over his head by a rope is a grand piano. And God's keyboard has like function, shift, alt, F1, F2, and then right in the middle, the biggest key simply says, smite. <laughs> and God is sitting back like, hmm. There are a number of those comics that uh, the far side depicts God in similar ways. I also remember one uh, in which God is, is cooking up the world in kind of a cast iron pot. And uh, he's got all the ingredients. You see, like, reptiles, trees, people, mountains. Uh, and they're all in kind of mason jars. And then he's thinking, and just to make things interesting, and he's got a shaker, and he's shaking it onto the world, and label on the shaker says, jerks. <laughs> it's a favorite of mine, too. But even though these things are yucks, they're jokes, I think many people in the world today view God more like that then, like a biblical, true, sovereign God, a God who sits in heaven, the God who created everything out of nothing, preserves everything every moment, and works all things together for his purpose. We think of him as being either on our side all the time, like a, a wingman, a buddy, or a teddy bear, or being against us. Oh, come on, God. I know you're up there with the button just waiting to drop the piano on me. You've dropped ten things on me today. Why not one more? And yet here in this passage, we see the true nature and heart of our God. Now, what we've been studying in the book of Ezra most recently has involved the people who came back from exile, a faithful remnant, and they were there to build the temple. They'd been in exile in Babylon. The Persians took over. Now a group of them are back, and they had kind of flagged in their work for a while. So the prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, got them going. Come on, guys. God's not happy with this. Let's build. And as soon as they started to build, here come their enemies, the Samaritans, out of the woodwork, trying to stop them again. And they tried to stop them by writing a tattletale letter back to the king, Darius, saying, are, are they really supposed to be building? Uh, I don't know if this is uh, up to code, etc. Like the world's worst homeowners association. And then the letter came back from King Darius that said, yes, I'm paraphrasing. It essentially said, you leave them alone with this huge exception. You are to provide everything they need and pay for it from your own tax revenue. It's such a delicious turn of events. And so the enemies of God's people had no choice. They couldn't be seen to rebel or foment rebellion or disobey, and so they obey. And they did it, according to the text here, with all diligence. Or in the King James, so they did speedily. Once again, the King James wins. 
The people rebuilt passionately. The elders led, and they led not just by saying, you there, build that, but by building with their own hands. And within four years, they had finished the temple project. And here we see its dedication. And what we see in this passage is a God who is faithful even when we are faithless, his faithfulness coming to fruition. His grace on his people. Now, we see also the nature of grace. It doesn't mean God doesn't care about sin. That's often how people have have justified their lifestyles these days. Oh, I'm a Christian, and I live in this just flagrantly sinful way because grace. Scripture tells us more than once not to turn God's grace to license because that is blasphemy. Grace is that God continues to be faithful to his covenants even when we break them. And we see that throughout the Old Testament. We see that there are built into God's covenants with his people, as all covenants had, blessings and curses. Blessings in the Old Covenant for those who obeyed. If the people continued to seek his face and follow his law, they would be blessed. And curses for when they disobeyed. And when he comes and brings those curses on them, it's for a purpose and for a time. It's to bring them back into full fellowship with himself. It's almost as if God is giving the people what they've demanded. C.S. Lewis essentially described hell that way. If, If you go to hell, this is what you've demanded separation from God. You want nothing to do with him. And he says, it breaks my heart, but okay, here. Well, in the Old Covenant, we see these temporary grantings, answerings of prayers that are not good for the people for a time and for a purpose. He gives them what they demand. All the way back to the very beginning, right? You won't truly die if you eat this fruit, but you will become like God, knowing good and evil. They say, oh, we want that. We want all that comes with it. And God says, okay, I'll grant it to you. Or a little later in the Old Testament, we want a king like the other nations. And God says, "Uh, no, you don't. Oh, yes, we do. We insist. Okay. And then we get the debacle, the disaster that is King Saul and all that goes with it. And then more recent here, right before the exile, we see God saying, essentially, you want an alliance with other kings? You want to look back to Egypt from which I delivered you for security, for help, for resources, for all that you know? Okay, sure. I'll go ahead and give it to you. I'll hand it over to you. I'll hand you over to them. How about that? You can be their possession for a time, essentially, and that will teach you that faithfulness matters. And when you are done in your exile after 70 years, I'll still be here, and I'll still be faithful. Because even in these covenant curses, there's always hope. There's always a silver lining here. Zechariah and Haggai come and bring these continual prophecies to not only kind of goose the people back into action, but to continually encourage them as they build. We looked at one of these passages from Haggai just a couple weeks ago. And all of this goes back even further. Jeremiah 3. It sounds very final when God talks about uh, his kind of breaking away from his people or letting them break away from him. I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all of her adulteries. Because Israel's immorality mattered so little to her, she defiled the land and committed adultery with stone and wood. 
In spite of all this, her unfaithful sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but only in pretense. And so you say, wow, it sounds like next on the chopping block is Judah. You're going to send Judah away, and that will be that. Maybe that'll be the end of this messianic prophecy. Maybe that'll be the end of the hope for salvation for mankind. And yet, remember, this is the same God who called Hosea to be his prophet and said, listen, you're going to be the kind of prophet not that just says stuff, but that does things. That's not the kind of prophet you want to be. You read the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, again and again, the prophets who are called to do the symbolic actions have the worst jobs ever. Um, Ezekiel told, you know, like, lay on your left side for this many months and, and you know, cook your food on your own dried excrement and stuff. And you're like, uh, can I just deliver a message, please? Walk around naked for this many years. Well, Hosea was told, marry this woman, Gomer, who was very much a uh, unfaithful wife, and again and again and again, she is going to go off and commit adultery with other men, even moving into their homes, and again and again and again, you are going to take her back. And the prophecy, the message built into this is that this is my heart for you. This is what you continually do. You walk away, you commit adultery with stone and wood, other gods, other, other gods that you worship in my face, in absolute defiance of the first commandment, and yet you see me taking you back again and again because of my deep abiding love for you. Well, we see that deep abiding love in this passage as they dedicate the temple that has finally been rebuilt. Now, this is 516 B.C., the third day of the month, Adar. Again, everything is nicely laid out in sequence for us here. Now, when was the temple destroyed? Anyone know? Well, the second temple was destroyed then. The first temple. 586. A little quick math. This is 70 years, almost to the day from the destruction of the temple, that they are here now dedicating a new temple. And we say, wow, that doesn't, that doesn't really add up because God brought them back years earlier and they dragged their feet and they were slow to obey and they let any little thing stop them and, and slow them down and, and make them focus on other things. Well, even the people dragging their feet and failing to obey worked into God's sovereign plan and decree and him keeping his promises that 70 years would be the length of their exile, their time without a temple in which to worship. And it's his doing through and through. This chapter begins with the words, then Darius the king made a decree. In fact, four times between the beginning of the chapter and verse 14, we read about Darius being the one who decrees. Verse 12, I, Darius, make a decree. Yet in verse 14, credit goes first and foremost to the decree of the God of Israel. Yes, human kings can say, you do that, and it gets done. And yet God is even using those decrees. God is even using kings who are not his servants. Cyrus, Darius, Artaxerxes, these men worshipped Marduk. A wicked idol, and, and yet God is using Darius here by his decree to bring about his means. This should comfort us when we look around and say, it looks like the whole world's falling apart and there's no way God can salvage this. 
Even if wicked people are in power, even if wicked people are, are overwhelming a culture, even if, if the days are evil, God is working all things together for his purpose. Verse 14, we read an incredibly important little phrase. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And so it wasn't the, the kings with all the worldly power that get the credit, but the prophets with the words of power. This power of what God does through the proclamation of his word shines in this passage. His decree, if proclaimed even by broken, feeble people, brings about great results. God indeed has a plan. You can, you can take that to the bank no matter what your situation is. In fact, even the worst thing that ever happened, the death of Jesus, simultaneously the best thing that ever happened for us, was according to God's plan. Acts 2.23 This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So not taking away the responsibility of humans, but actually establishing it and saying that God is behind all of it. That's the background. Here we see the response of the people. And it might seem with, with an intro like that, like I'm going to go long today, but I promise you I won't. I've said it before. Trust me this time. <laughs> Lucy with the football. Just trust me this time. We see three things that the people do in response. I'm going to go through them backwards because they build on each other. And I want to go back through to the foundation. So first we see them resuming full sacrifice of temple worship. Yes, they had started doing some sacrifices years and years earlier when they rebuilt the altar, but they couldn't do all of them. And they couldn't do, they're going to do Passover next time, and we're going to see that uh, next week. They couldn't celebrate the Passover. There's lots of stuff they couldn't do until they had an actual temple. And this is so important, these sacrifices, because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And this temple is a foreshadowing of how sinful humans can be reconciled to a holy God, a thrice holy God. Because the picture is this God dwelling in the holiest place and all the people stuck outside. If they go into the holiest place, they die. And the picture then of how they can be reconciled through a priest bringing the blood of a spotless sacrifice into the holy place, sprinkling that blood on the top of the mercy seat when it was there, and making atonement for the people is all important and points us forward to the cross of Jesus Christ. Even Darius seems to understand this when he tells them in verse 10 to go, go ahead and keep on building, quote, that they may offer sacrifices of pleasing aroma to the God of heaven. He recognizes that there needs to be a finished temple before they can really completely resume their sacrificial system. And how they offer it, the second thing they offer, remember going backwards, is fellowship offerings. Fellowship offerings are they're enormous. Now this is small compared to the numbers you see when Solomon's temple is dedicated. But remember, you're dealing with just a small faithful remnant 
of those returned exiles. Still, it's a quite a large offering when we read the total numbers involved. A fellowship offering, also called a thank offering or a peace offering, is sacrificed and eaten by the people with the priests. And the picture is, we're in fellowship with God. We're in good standing with our God. In fact, it reminds me an awful lot of the Lord's Supper. We talked last week about how we are friends of Christ and brothers and sisters of Christ. And we can come and fellowship with him, even table fellowship. But before that, a sin offering must be made, also called a purification offering. An atonement, and it's 12 bullocks, uh, or 12 he-goats, I think, uh, for the 12 tribes of Israel. One for each tribe. Again, the unity is emphasized here. And, and so the people, before they can come into God's presence and fellowship with him, need their sins atoned for, and it has to be done by the shedding of blood. Now, this just highlights how much more reason you and I have to rejoice than the people in the Old Covenant infinitely more reason because the sacrifice for our sins is complete once for all the apostle tells us in hebrews 10 that without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin but he also describes that old covenant system in this way day after day every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins but when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Who is this priest? Jesus Christ, our high priest. One sacrifice once for all, and then he sits down at the right hand of God, the work done. This is why on the cross he said, it is finished. Here we see 12 offerings for 12 tribes. Jesus died once for all for every tribe, every tongue, every nation, everyone who would come to him. What a cause for celebration. This is why I tell you when we are sharing the Lord's Supper that it should not be exclusively somber slash gloomy or morbid slash melancholy. Yes, it's solemn, it shouldn't be a time for goofing around or, or joking around. Certainly, we are commemorating the death of our Lord Jesus. But this sin offering means we can come to him in thanks and fellowship and actually be his brothers and sisters. Here we see the priesthood restored in a, a very human way by their divisions that were set out in the Old Covenant documents. Our high priest has made us a nation of priests, a holy priesthood. And so Jesus then is the high priest. We go directly to him. He is the mediator. He is both the sacrifice and the one bringing the sacrifice on our behalf. So there's sacrifice. Secondly, there is celebration. And this probably marks this passage more than anything else. In fact, why were the people rescued from slavery in Egypt and brought to the promised land? Again and again, Moses said, so that they might worship and serve their God. This is why we want to go. And here, God brings these people out of exile in Babylon again to the promised land so that they might worship and serve him. And so the dedication of the temple is about worshiping and serving him in the land that he had promised them. 
And when the temple is completed and they dedicate it, yes, they rejoice. They celebrate. Verse 16, the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. Not only have they been redeemed and saved out of slavery, they've now been restored and welcomed back into the house of God, which they rejected. His mercy has overwhelmed their iniquities. They said, sin, 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 sin. And God said, love, mercy, restitution, reconciliation, atonement, and brought them back to himself. There's nothing they can do but rejoice. Shout for joy that their God and King is full of grace and mercy and covenant loyalty and loving kindness, unlike the gods of all the nations around them who are petty and very human and quick to turn on their people. We've been saved from slavery to sin and bondage to death. We've been raised from the dead. And so I, I don't get Christians who've been set free like this, and they're just, all right. I'm all right. I'm okay. You remember that paralytic that his friends brought him under the roof because the house was surrounded by people and they couldn't get in, and they dug through the roof and they lowered him into Jesus, and, and Jesus said to him, your sins are forgiven, and then he said to him, rise, take up your bed, and go home. And the man stood up, rolled up his bed, and said, cool. And went home. Remember that? No, you don't, because it's not in the Bible. No, not only that man, but all who had seen it glorified God. Matthew 9, 8. In the same chapter, Jesus heals two blind men. And we read, they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. These people are celebrating you read some of the psalms they wrote in exile, and they said, we can't celebrate. We can't, we can't rejoice. Psalm 137, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, hey, sing us one of the songs of Zion. But how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Now they're back. Now the temple's been built. Now it's been dedicated. Now the sacrifices are being made, and they're in fellowship with their God, and they must rejoice. In Luke 18, on the way into Jericho, a blind man cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. Again and again, those who are healed by the power of the Lord Jesus do three things. They follow him, they rejoice and glorify God, and they don't shut up about it. They can't shut up about it. Even those when Jesus says to them, now be sure not to tell anyone about this. They're like, okay, in the next verse, all he says, but they went out and told everyone. Doesn't stop with Jesus' ascension either. In Acts 3, you remember there's the man begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. He wants, he wants some money, he needs some help. And Peter says to him, silver and gold have I none, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And the guy got up, shrugged his shoulders, and went and got a falafel, right? And then went home and went to sleep. No! Acts 3.8, jumping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. When you hear the gospel, does your heart leap with joy? If not, why not? 
This dedication of the temple, a rededication after a temporary falling away is chock full of the joy of salvation. The shadows and the darkness don't have a chance with these billion watts of light blinding from the, the light of God and his mercy. All the darkness flees. On his best day, I think the devil can't do as much violence to the witness of Christ and the furtherance of his kingdom than one grumpy Christian. One Christian who seems unmoved and unaffected by the death and resurrection of the Son of God on our behalf for our salvation, who's just all right. The generation that remembered the old temple, by the way, who had wept when they saw the foundation laid because they remembered the glory of what came before, they seem to have passed on now. They're gone. And so when they're dedicating the temple, maybe that's another reason that God in his sovereignty allowed this gap to happen. Now it's just people who are nothing but excited about what is to come. Alex and I went to the, the last Together for the Gospel event in Louisville this past year, and we heard John Piper being interviewed about 50 years of ministry. It was absolutely incredible. And he talked about some of his early days at Bethlehem Baptist. He said he got there, and the first thing he saw was a sea of gray hair. That was the demographic of the church. He said almost all of them were wonderful and supportive of his ministry, and he loved them dearly. And in the midst of them, there was an initial wave of legalistic resistance, opposition, people who were always, by principle, opposed to everything. That seems to be a Baptist value for some reason. You have to have a nay-sayer to say nay when you vote on a budget or anything else. Always opposed, sitting in the back with their arms crossed. And what he said is, I went and I told those people again and again, you go ahead, you, you oppose me, you grumble, you naysay, but I will out-rejoice you, and I will outlast you. Then he smiled and said, and I did. They're all dead. <laughs> of course, he's 76 years old now and, and retired. And uh, thinking back on that time, he thought rejoicing, out-rejoicing them, overpowered their grumbling, overpowered their down-in-the-mouth spirituality. Because how can you do anything but rejoice in the face of the cross and the empty tomb? So, there was sacrifice, there was celebration. We're going backwards. Thirdly, they dedicated the temple. There was dedication. That was the first thing. This is what the passage is about. Bishop Patrick describes it this way. They entered upon it with solemnity and probably with a public declaration of the separating of it from common uses and the surrender of it to the honor of God to be employed in his worship. We see this word dedication in verse 16. The people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of his house of God with joy. The word dedication here in the Aramaic, Chanukah, same as the Hebrew word, Chanukah. It's used of the dedication of the altar in Numbers, used of the dedication of the wall in the next book, in Nehemiah. It's a word you know, Chanukah, Hanukkah, right? A Jewish celebration when they celebrate the rededication of the temple. 
You know the backstory of that? You find it, if you were a Catholic growing up, you probably read these books, maybe. They're, they're in the Apocrypha, First and Second Maccabees, a story of how uh, the, the people were under the oppression of the Greek generals that kind of splintered off from Alexander the Great's rule after his death. And Antiochus Epiphanes IV, this awful, wicked ruler, decided he was going to show these Jews just how powerless their God was. So he went right into the temple and slaughtered a pig on the holy altar, defiling the temple. Of course, this awakened the sleeping giant. It's a, it's a great story. Uh, Judas Maccabees, his name means Jude the Hammer. Yeah, this needs to be a movie. He was just like, guess what? I'm going to kill you. And he, and he killed a guy who was trying to make him uh, sacrifice likewise to the pagan gods. And that caused this great uprising. And they defeated their oppressors. And then they decided it's time to rededicate our temple. I'm sure you've heard about the story then of the miraculous oil lasting eight days, which should have lasted less than one day. Jesus himself seems to have gone to Jerusalem for that very feast. And so it was uh, on his radar but the notion that Hanukkah means dedication, consecration, but can also mean rededication, reconsecration, is so fascinating to me. We read in Psalm 30, a psalm of David, a song of Hanukkah, of dedication, at the time of the dedicating of the first temple. Now, this is after David's time, but he wrote a song for it all the same. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up. And have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought me up from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry. And to the Lord, I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me, O Lord. Be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth. You clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O oh Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. I think this is a perfect transition to the, the New Testament notion that we are indeed the temple of God, built of living stone, built of those people whom he has called by his name. And has washed in the blood of Jesus. We are the temple. And so we should move from dedication to celebration. If you lack the joy of the Lord, remember we're going backwards. They're built on what comes after. If you lack the joy of the Lord, perhaps what you need is a little kanuka. Dedication, reconsecration. Have you really given him everything? Have you acknowledged all that you have is his? Remember, this holy remnant of returning exiles took a while to do that. And finally they said, you know, we've got to stop building up our own paneled houses and decorating our own homes and towns and give ourselves fully to this task because all that we have is his. The celebration builds on this. 
And the sacrifice builds on this, this consecration and rededication. In Romans 12, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. If you grew up with the King James like I did, you know that the King James says to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable act of service. I always thought that was weird because he's telling us to do this crazy, passionate thing. Throw ourselves on the altar and say, Lord, I'm yours. I'm a living sacrifice. Use me however you will. Do with me what you will. I, I am at your service because it seems reasonable. Spiritual, reasonable. You look at it and you say, how can the same word in Greek be translated those two different ways? Well, the word is logikos. It's where we get our word logical. Not that that matters all that much, but it helps you see perhaps this is reasonable. And it is reasonable. Nothing else makes sense considering who God is and what he's done for us than to celebrate every single day who he is and what he's done for us and to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, or as Jesus said, take up our cross and follow him. Deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. And if you lack this celebration in your life, perhaps you should ask yourself whether you lack the consecration, the dedication. And I don't mean that in the football coach sense of the word. You need some dedication. I mean that you have placed yourself entirely in the hands of your Savior. The idea of rededicating in my circles has, has taken quite a beating because people will often view it like this. I need my numbers when I preach the gospel at an event or a revival or something. So I'm going to say, who wants to put their faith in Jesus and be born again? Hands will go up and I'll go, eh. who did that already but uh, they've messed up and wants to rededicate? More hands, more numbers. All right. That's a very bad way to approach these things. And yet rededication daily, day by day, even perhaps hour by hour, is in fact what discipleship, what the Christian life looks like. We fall away, we fail, we miss the mark, we sin, we turn away, and we come back to him and say, Lord, your mercies are new every morning. When I'm faithless, you are faithful. Forgive me, renew me, lead me, burn out of me whatever it was that caused me to walk away. Help me to follow you and walk worthy of my calling. Not to be saved again, but returning again from exile, usually self-imposed exile, returning again to a life of worship and service in which you will find the joy of the Lord is your strength. We say to our Lord, everything is for you and your glory and your service. Or like we sing in the, in the great hymn, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. There's that word, consecrated. Or there's another one. This is one of these infinite verse songs. In my life, Lord, be glorified. You know that one? I think it's from the late 70s. Gives me a particular kind of peace when I hear it, like all those late 70s worship songs do. And then you sing, in our church, Lord, be glorified, be glorified today. Then you sing, in my time, Lord, be glorified, be glorified. And if the guy with the guitar around the campfire wants to keep going three hours, you keep going three hours because you never run out of things to put and fill in the blank there. In my thoughts, Lord, be glorified, be glorified today. In my whatever, infinite verses. What a wonderful song. I once met a guy at Lake Louise. Uh, when I was there as camp pastor, he was up at the staff table just one day. And unusual guy. He was there because he had provided us with Lake Louise-specific 
Pez dispensers to use for like a, a big fundraiser thing. And he, he was about my age. I was probably 30, 35 at the time. And he had tattoos of Pez dispensers all up and down his arms. And I said, tell me about yourself. And I thought, what an interesting guy. He's in a Pez dispensers. He's probably got an interesting story. Everything he talked about was Pez related. Oh, yeah, I do this, Pez, Pez, Pez. And then, and then we started talking about the cross and Jesus. And, and he said, he was a very committed Christian. And he, he said, you know, there was a time when I even said to God, Lord, if you want, me, if you want me to give up Pez, I will. You laugh. I, I squelched a laugh. It seemed ridiculous to me. And then I thought about it later. And I thought, no, that's not ridiculous. Not the least. The one thing that kind of he's most into, the stuff I'm into probably seems stupid to some people. To be make fun of me for my Palm Pilot, my old computers and stuff. Lord, if you want me to give that up, I will. Are you willing to say that about what is dearest to you? Abraham was even willing to say, Lord, if you want me to bring my son, my only son whom I love, up onto Mount Moriah and offer him to you as a sacrifice, I will. This is what it looks like to be a living sacrifice. There is an old sermon illustration. I'm not sure if it's true or not, but I've heard it many times. It's about this pig and this chicken. They were having a conversation one day. And they were, it's probably not true now that I think about it. But they were talking about the farmer and how, you know, every morning at the crack of dawn, he's out here, he's, he's feeding us, he's mucking out our stalls, he's cleaning up after us, he's brushing us when we're sick, he takes care of us. He's such an awesome guy. You know what we should do? We should do something special for him. And they're brainstorming, and they're coming up with all these ideas, like we can make him a straw hat. And they look at the straw, and they're like, nah, he probably wouldn't want to wear it. And they're coming up with all this. And then, and then the chicken goes, I've got it. I've got it. We make for the, the farmer a ham and egg breakfast. And the pig said, slow down a minute. What you're suggesting is that you make a contribution, and that I be the contribution. Well, the scripture tells us that if we have been consecrated and received on our behalf the, the benefits of that once-for-all sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross and brought into his presence as his sons and daughters, that we will be the offering, not just make the offerings. And in that, there is nothing but comfort for those who belong to Jesus. Because when God's promises seem to be all chained up and dragged down by our own weaknesses or the wickedness of the people around us or the people over us or just the weight of the spiritual apathy of our day and our culture which will celebrate and, and trumpet any spiritual tradition except the teachings of Jesus. When it seems like our own personal failures, our own besetting sins, our laziness, our corrupt habits are unbreakable and nothing can get me out of the rut I'm in, God's promises are powerful enough to break you free. I promise. How do I know? Because that's the story we're studying now. It's part of the greater story. That he has kept every single promise he's ever made. And so we can say to him, in my life, Lord, be glorified. In my peds, Lord, be glorified. In all of it, Lord, be glorified. I'm here as a living sacrifice. I'm here consecrating myself to you. Lord, Lord be, be my Lord in everything, not just the corner of my life I want to give you, but all of it. 
Every single aspect. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a message about a dedication, a consecration of a temple that was so long in coming. Lord, I pray that you would help us in our lives to recognize the the fact that we often want to hold back, just like those people in, in the returning remnant wanted to hold back for a time. Lord, bring us prophets and, and use your word. And, and Lord, use your spirit within us and the unction of the spirit to break us out of these, these stupors when we get into them, to break us away from wasting time on social media, to break us away from wasting lives on frivolities, and Lord, for us to, to take every aspect of our lives, our time, our treasure, our talent, our, our very selves, and say to you, be glorified. Be glorified today. Amen.